0: People are actually rethinking their relationship with work, what they give to it, and what they could expect back from it.
1: Hey, hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post-Carbon Institute. We interview people that we call cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and also social artists, people who feel deeply and act with courage in the face of uncertainty. As we all work to protect what we love and change what we can and learn as we go, our awakened hearts are absolutely necessary partners to our critical thinking minds. This would go well for our guest today, Helene Olin. Helene is a columnist for the Washington Post's opinion section. She's the author of Pound Foolish, exposing the dark side of the personal finance industry and co-author of The Index Card, why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. She's been featured on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and took part in Frontline's Emmy Award-winning The Retirement Gamble. Her award-winning work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, The Nation, AARP, and Slate. She serves on the advisory board of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and now here is Helene. Welcome, Helene, to What Could Possibly Go Right. (laughs) I think you understand the game we are playing here. It's not analysis of what went wrong or prescriptions of what we should do to make things right, or even some Panglossian idea of the best of all possible worlds is just around the corner. We're asking you, as a long-time keen observer of this society, to tell us what green shoots of possibility you see growing through the cracks in the concrete as the old normal breaks. Our listeners are informed, perhaps over-informed in terms of what's coming apart, but they want to help something better come together. So y- you and I have both written books about simple, sane, sound financial practices. Mm. For you, it was advice that could be put on an index card. And we've both used our pens to defrock the swindles and bamboozles of the financial industry. Um, and, and so it's like, you know, I'm sort of locating you in that domain. And I wonder if there is something possibly going right in the personal finance world. For example, does the great resignation reflect a sense that the contract is broken between workers and employers? And if so, is there a new contract being written and where is it being written? Uh, or is the new Amazon Union evidence of a shift in the wind? Uh, is some other story emerging for younger people? Do co-ops and co-housing and buy nothing and sharing groups augur anything? So, I mean, I'm just sort of laying out some of the elements <laughs> on the, ga- you know, sort of like on the table so that we can finger paint with it. Uh, and th- so our basic question is, Elaine, in the midst of all that seems to be coming apart, what could possibly go right?
0: Oh, wow. I am totally fascinated by the great resignation. Um, one of the things I have thought about a lot, and I should say I almost proposed doing a book on the topic at one point, but then it was 2008 and the economy went into a tailspin and it up in a completely different direction, was the American relationship with work. We've really, the, the pandemic really severed something in the American relationship with work. And I think this was a really good thing to have severed, right? Americans think of work as almost a form of religion, where work is a nation of work. It's not simply a nation of workaholics. It's a nation of people who identify with their jobs in a way that other nations find utterly bizarre and weird. Like, you go, if you're in Europe, you don't ask people what they do. Like, it just never really comes up. And here, of course, it's the opposite. It's, hi, I'm Helene, I'm a journalist, right? It's like, hi, I'm Helene, I'm Jewish. Like, what the heck, right? And you'd think that was very weird. But we don't actually have any weirdness with that with work at all. We identify with our work in a way that's almost akin to religion. And this is something that got massively exploited over the past several decades. Uh, there is a book that I just love that was actually written by an Australian. I mean, the other nations have issues with this too. I don't want to be a Pollyanna but not to the same degree, called Better Than Sex. And I'm forgetting the exact title, but it was something like, subtitle something like how work became the most important thing in our lives ever, right? I just, that's not it, but it was something along those lines. But it's true, people became utterly obsessed with work. Employers took massive advantage of this. People were put in, you know, hours upon hours on the job. They, you know, in the United States, We not only don't have a legal right to vacation days or sick days, something COVID did not change, which I will rant about next. We actually celebrate people who don't take this stuff. You go to school, you get an award at the end of the 12th grade for perfect attendance, which is absolutely crazy because that tells me you showed up or you sent your kid to school when they were sick because kids get colds all the time. Adults get colds all the time too, even pre-COVID, but you certainly, so there was just this kind of glamorization and validation and valorization, that's the word I'm looking for, of work that was utterly absurd. And it was to the detriment of all of us. It, we, had, you know, we work at will in this country, you can be fired, unless you've got a union, you can pretty much be fired for any reason, unless it's you know, a legally prohibited discrimination issue. And good luck to you, you know, proving that, right? The, you know, we, we don't get paid as well as we should. We are not treated particularly well in many cases. Uh, and you know, I can just go on and on and on, right? I'll stop. I mean, you're nodding. You know what I'm talking about. If you're watching this broadcast, you probably know what I'm talking about, okay? So what the pandemic did was kind of fascinating because it worked on both levels. On the level of somebody like me or somebody like Vicki who could move to work at home pretty easily. In fact, I was mostly working at home even before the pandemic because I worked for the Washington Post and their offices are in Washington. And at the time I was in New York. So that presented a certain geographic problem. The, it, it just simply freed people from the tyranny of the office there was a lot of do you think is the word presenteeism right presentism presenteeism where I'm people nervous. just show up right you were supposed to be there all the time uh wall street was notorious for this so was the silicon valley silicon valley they you know they glamorized. oh you know you could bring your dog to work we're gonna give you course three, core, three core, four star meals at the cafeteria in fact that's so that you don't leave the damn place okay So that relationship gets totally severed. And all of a sudden people are at home all the time. They don't have to commute, which is another huge, huge issue. So they get severed from their office relationships. You know, the the idea that we're family, right? Secondarily, that's actually three parts of this. A hell of a lot of people for all that they're family get fired in like a matter of a week, basically. They get tossed overboard. The week of, um, I think it's like March 23rd, whatever that Monday is, over a million people get laid off the week before and that week. People are like severed from their family without a basic thought, right? And there's another good thing that comes out of that, which I will try to talk about in a second. But the third part is, and the most tragic part of this, there's a whole group of people who can't work at home, And they think they're lucky they don't get fired. They are laboring through the heart of the pandemic. And it becomes increasingly clear that a lot of their employers, and we're talking supermarket clerks, we're talking nurses, we're talking warehouse workers, we're talking doctors, garbage men, transit workers, anybody who your job can't be remote, right? The idea of a remote nurse is absurd, is that their employers in many cases they come to field don't particularly care about them. Their, their precautions are not great. Even though a law is quickly passed to give temporary sick leave for COVID, the by the way not for anything else but COVID this leaves a massive loophole because employers a lot of employers start saying prove it so all of a sudden and we all know what happened with the tests and the backups and all the rest so suddenly people feel forced to go to work sick because they can't prove that they've got COVID like there was I had COVID in March of 2020 I only know that for sure because I went and got antibody tested and at the end of May or early June of 2020 because of course There was no easy to get test, and I didn't feel really well enough to start pursuing it. And I wasn't really sick enough for it to be a huge issue. So I just sort of waited it out. right? But the point is, is other people got very, very sick and they didn't feel their employers cared in many cases. So all of this leads to some great tumult that comes and that we call the great resignation that maybe could be called the great renegotiation. Um, It's called, I think it's called, some people call it the lie down movement, I think in Asia. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? And essentially people are like, wait a second, what was I doing with my life? Exactly. Um, Because one of the good things that also came out of this is there was extent, the government actually worked for once, right? We have this idea in our country, government doesn't work. And for the most part, it actually doesn't. But One thing they did when faced with this emergency, in part because our unemployment systems were in such a decrepit state, they actually didn't know who was working for who and how much money they were earning, and especially with gig workers, that they just okayed a $600 a week supplement, which for many people actually turned out to be more than they were earning on the job. So the combo of all of this leads to like a great rethink. On everybody's part. There were people working remote are like, hey, wait a minute. I've been wasting hours of my life commuting and hours of my life hanging around an office when I don't need to be there. The people who've been fired, you know, are like, wait a second, we weren't family. Wait a second here, you know. And by the way, you know, I suddenly have this free time and I'm not so worried about money. And this is actually kind of okay like i'm working stuff out like i'm enjoying my life a little bit more and the people of course who are laboring through the whole thing are increasingly furious because a they're not they're expected to work they're often still getting paid less than the people who got fired because their salaries were not great and they don't think anybody cares about them and in many cases they were completely right so as the economy kind of lurches back to life uh, as we worry less and less about the pandemic, as vaccines come online, as when people just simply get tired of it, fill in the blank, everybody has different feelings about this, and we're not here to talk about that, <laughs> is all of these people are suddenly rethinking their entire relationship with work, their job, their career, their family, and I mean that in a broader sense of spending time with their family you know, is work your family really? And the answer is no, work is not your family. These are not people I want to spend, you know, all my time with, which is perfectly fine. I mean, so we get this movement of people out of the workforce who don't want to come back. You get some increased retirements among the baby boom, some of which appears to be people just who can't get work because of age discrimination, which nobody will deal with ever in this country as far as I can tell. Um, And some of it is people saying, wait a second, I actually interviewed one guy who had lost a job just before the pandemic, actually, who was in his sixties. I was like, wait a second, this is like, I actually have time to see my family. This is great. And he worked at a restaurant. He was a restaurant manager and they work like 60 hours a week and they're salaried, so they're not getting overtime. So he's now working part-time again and he's very happy. But he said to me, he probably will never go back full-time. So there's just this rethink. And he actually said to me, I have a life. That was actually what he said to me. And so this has resulted in union activism, increased union activism. It's resulted in people demanding better of their jobs and, you know, no, I wanna work at home. I mean, it's been actually fascinating to watch even banks who really were trying to push people back into the office full-time, in many cases because they're the ones financing the real estate. So they've got a motivation that goes way beyond their workforce to try to get people back in full-time saying, finally caving and saying, no, we're going to have to give these people a part-time remote option. So it, you know, it goes because it's often portrayed as just this idea of, oh, somebody just feels like working on the beach. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually what's going on at all. People are actually rethinking their relationship with work, what they give to it, and what they could expect back from it. And it's been this fascinating movement. And I have to say, I didn't really see it coming. So I don't think anybody really saw it coming. Um, And it's been a really kind of amazing thing to watch. And I think it's gonna be fascinating to see how it plays out because I do believe, and this is partly a demographics issue. We are moving into from a period of where we had labor surpluses for many years Uh, not simply because of immigration. Everybody always thinks it's immigration. It's actually a lot to do with the baby boom and just the surge of the population that was part of that cohort. Uh, You're probably a baby boomer, right? I am not. So I have been basically waiting for these people to leave the workforce for (laughs)
1: like
0: 30 plus years, right? (laughs) And, you know, how, and there probably will be reduced immigration going forward because other countries have had, like us have had falling birth rates. It's not simply a matter of whether we shut the spigots off or you know put them on full blast. There's also a supply and demand issue to be blunt about it. And a lot of most people actually, while they like the United States just fine, all things being equal to rather stay at home, Like, right? Most people like their countries. They wanna be there if they can afford to. Um, and so I think you're seeing a future coming forward of probably you know, increased labor shortages. And how is that going to play out? The answer is it's going to give people a lot more power. The downside of that is it's probably also gonna encourage more inflation. And, you know, inflation is a byproduct in part of labor shortages because you can demand an increased salary. And that's generally a good thing. But in the current environment we've lived in for the past 20 plus years, where there's been very limited inflation, it's going to be a huge, huge adjustment for people to really realize that, that wait a second, paying people fairly probably means my cost of living is going to go up. And watching that play out among itself is also going to be a kind of fascinating thing to me. Uh, Most people do want salary increases. Uh, It's Weird how that works, right? We all want to be paid fairly, and fairly is usually defined as more we're getting, more than we're getting right now. It's
1: <laughs> amazing
0: how we all do that too. Uh, but in the United States, in the case of the United States, it's often quite correct. So anyway, I've been babbling and babbling. Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: any way you want to play it, you know. I, I do have some thoughts based on what you're saying, but if you want to, if no, 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 no. Okay, so so I just find this. It's very much what I'm seeing,
0: mm-hmm. you know, and,
1: and both of us have, uh, you know, a deep history in looking at the personal finance world and the world of work and the world of identification with work and the, you know, the re- reification of your job is your meaning and all that stuff. And I did a survey. I, I think you probably know about the FIRE community, financial independence, retire early, which I think, um, I think it's financial independents retire eventually, you know, it's like, it's, it's sort of the meme is, is it the, the name doesn't fit what's actually going on as far as I can tell. Um, and I did a survey about the great resignation. What, you know, what did people think was motivating that? And there's a piece of it that I think is that you haven't mentioned, but is behind things. Part of it was, um, it's a a sort of a, it's maybe called a class resentment. It's like, wait a second. You know, I can see that the people running my business have made out like bandits, and they're not willing to bring me along. You know, so there is a a, a justice part of it where there were people who have, who are more, basically more connected with power, who are able to bleed off, some of the you know the 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 great whoosh of money that was that was just like pouring out of the government and yet they you know so they walked away with the benefit so there was something about dignity you know that that is there was something even more core it was like no (laughs) this is it wasn't just this is not fair it was this is not right this is, you know, this is like a immoral. It, it was like a, it's almost like a breaking of the contract between, you know, a contract with America, not on whatever that was, but breaking the contract of, of a story of America that isn't here anymore. A story of sort of getting better together, rising tide, you know, this sort of thing. I think it's finally that contract is, is obviously broken but it's not that there isn't money it's just that it's been absorbed <laughs> sure. by the owning class uh, so the, the yeah so that's just an al- analytical but i'm i'm very curious i'm sort of watching and i'm not clear about it what people f- how are people finding to meet their needs as they unhook from jobism? Is that, what do you see changing there? You know, it's like our, I think as you say, some, some you know, boomers have figured out they could retire and even, you know, Gen Xers have figured out, okay, I have enough, I can, I can leave the workforce. But what are people, where do you see people migrating in terms of self-provisioning?
0: That's a really interesting question. And I don't think there's an answer to that yet. I think realistically, we're going to see, and we know this because we live in a country with a crap sa- social safety net, and a lot of people who don't have enough money for retirement. We are the fire movement notwithstanding about to see a lot more older people living in poverty or near poverty. There's a little question in my mind about that. So I don't wanna portray this as a fully terrific thing. On the other hand, the idea that somebody in their 70s was supposed to be, you know, working at a, you know, behind the counter at Walmart was also kind of crazy. People aren't that healthy a lot of the time. We have this sort of idea in our society that, you know, people can work till they drop, And it doesn't really work that way. It just doesn't. I wish it did, believe me. Now that I'm in my 50s, I feel it. Um, you know, like, <laughs> um, but so I you know, I don't necessarily I think it's going to be all positive in that direction. I think there's going to be increased pressure on the government to do something about it. I don't know how that's going to play out with, because you're getting on one end, you know, pressure of, I don't want to work as much. I don't, you know, or I, with the, the other part of this, as I briefly mentioned before, there is still a massive age discrimination component. And I do think some of it, frankly, is people just don't want to put up with that anymore. They're just saying, screw it with, at the same time, a push towards more austerity. And, you know, you know, the sort of ever, you know, present threat of, you know, so, of quote, social security is going to go bankrupt, right? right which is, right. I've written about this at length. It is not true. And I wish people would stop saying it. And, or that, which is, could be used, however, to, Try to cut people's benefits and leave them much worse off. So financially, I'm actually still very, very concerned about a lot of this. And I think that's why it's so important to get pressure going for increased wages, which while they are going up, they are not going up in accordance with inflation, especially for long established workers, you're seeing the the greatest gains, and this is good in a lot of ways, are being made for younger workers and for the least, um, uh, you know, least, you know, classically skilled workers, right? So, you know, jobs that people feel are replaceable, more or less, you're seeing, you know, really great gains for people who are, you know, doing stuff like, you know, like the door in New York City, for instance, just got a huge raise in their most recent contract. Um, so you are seeing that, um, and that pressure is going to have to continue because otherwise, no, people are going to have real financial issues in this environment. Uh, but, in and of itself, the idea that we're rethinking our relationship to work is a good thing because that keeps the pressure on it. The more you don't think of work as your calling, as, as you know, the United States work is supposed to be a calling, right? The more that you think of work as something you do to a means to an end instead of the end itself actually gives you more leverage to insist on being treated better and being treated better includes being paid better but it also includes having more control of your time. Whether that's a movement to work less hours, actually wrote about the push for a 32 hour work week this week, or whether that's a push to save hours upon hours commuting or it's simply a push to be treated better at Starbucks. You know, which is one of the great surprising stories of the of the pandemic. Nobody, upon nobody, thought there was going to be a massive union movement out of Starbucks, and yet here we are.
1: Yeah. Um.
0: So I think all of those will come together and make make this situation, you know, sustainable in a lot of ways. I, I as I keep saying, I don't think you're putting this genie back in the bottle. How will right. it will play out, I don't know, but. I can tell you it's going to continue playing out, certainly, you know, for anybody who's a Gen Xer at this point, probably for the remainder of your work lifetime. I mean, it's simply demographics insist on it, the reality of the post-pandemic period insists on it, and simply the fact that people got a glimpse of another way of life plays out on it. Yeah,
1: I, I I have another curiosity, you know, and I'm sort of a, you probably know this about me, but I, I'm sort of just like, I'm like a little schmoo doll and I always land on communitarian mm-hmm. um, values, you know, that basically, you know, one lawnmower per household, you know, and everybody has to like, you know, buy a lawnmower, but you have a, a lawnmower co-op in a neighborhood and you have one lawnmower and you know, so it's basically cooperative solutions. It's like the last thing, it, it's like the last thing Americans like to do is cooperate with the people next door.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't see it. Ha- okay. So here's
1: <laughs> a story for you. Okay.
0: I'm actually very into this as well, in part because of a European friend who once lectured me about this. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm flying back from New York to. Uh, to Los Angeles. I'm actually supposed to be flying into Burbank. I live near the Burbank airport. And a half hour before we land, actually 35 minutes to be technically correct, they announce we're actually not going to Burbank. We're going to LAX. And everybody, of course, is furious. No kidding, right? I am able, because of the magic of texting, able to get to my husband, who is in the car going, driving to Burbank to pick me up, I am able to say, go to LAX. He doesn't respond. I text my kids, my kids call him, he comes to LAX. So, as we're leaving, because I'm pretty much assuming everybody on this plane is heading in the same direction I am, otherwise, why fly to Burbank? Um, just for people who don't know LA geography, I should say LAX is on the Pacific Ocean pretty much, it's about a mile from the ocean. Burbank is about, it somewhere between 12 and 15 miles inland, which by LA traffic standards means you're about, depending on the time of day, you're about an hour away, right? So this is a massive inconvenience for people. They're gonna run up Uber bills or they're gonna get stuck waiting at the airport for a few hours for a shuttle to get them back to Burbank. So I very nicely say, as we're leaving, hey, by the way, we're going to Eagle Rock. That's the neighborhood I live in. Um, If anybody's heading in this direction, come along. And the only people who agree a European couple.
1: Yes, exactly. Who think this is a totally normal thing
0: to do, right? And anyway, they were lovely and we drove them. Um, they they came to our house and their daughter who lived in the next community over came to pick them up and it was very nice. Yeah. Um, I've never seen them again. I've already forgotten who they are. But so, but they were really lovely people and we actually talked in the car for an hour, 45 minutes, or however long we were there. And it, it was a really nice thing to have done, right? I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but this is how we should do things. okay? Exactly. We are allergic to that in this country. And I get there are sharing groups. I get that there's this little movement where it's people try to do it. But I would say 99% of the time, people would rather still sell their stuff at a garage sale. And they still rather would have their own vacuum cleaner, even though how often do you really use a vacuum cleaner? And, and I think realistically... While, well, you know, hey, I'm all for boutique movements like that. So I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for a lot of reasons. Um, I think it's good for the environment. I think it's good just to not think about spending money that way. I think it's good to share stuff. I mean, fill in the blank. I just don't think it's ever going to catch on as a mass phenomenon. So I wish I think- was wrong about that. Believe
1: <laughs> <me>. <laughs> I'm not sure that that it's going to be a mass phenomenon, but I just do want to say that there you know, one of the, the ideas that's been like bled out of us since the Reagan era is that the government is us. You know, that this we pay our taxes, this is our tax money, and that we're supposed to be distributing in ways that make our lives better. And so it's like, you know, there's ideas just like universal access to health care. Just that if we could solve the cap- capitalist system for health care and have something that was more communitarian, you know, more Canadian, um, a lot of, you know, if we could get over the hump that, that, that we're being bamboozled with, you know, like, oh, you won't have choice of your own doctor, if we could get over the hump, it would get better for everyone. I mean, it, these are sort of communitarian, collective communitarian things, like, like, you know, like it used to be that you could get uh, free college education at a state university or relatively free. I mean, there's so many problems that, that force people into sticking with a job to get the money, to get the, da da even healthcare, you know, even healthcare, like you have to have a job in order to have access to your healthcare. So I'm just, I'm not just saying like the boutique little buy nothing groups, which of mm-hmm. course I adore, but, but I'm talking about is the, like the unionization in, in Amazon just you know, and Starbucks, are any of these do you think harbingers of a willingness on the part of Americans to solve problems together?
0: I think yes and no. I think there's a lot of cynicism about government. And I think in a weird way, it was compounded by the fact that the government actually responded to us initially during the pandemic. We did get the expanded unemployment. We did get the childcare tax credit. There was, no matter how imperfectly um, enacted it was, there was sick leave for COVID. And there was this thought that, oh, we'll build on these gains. This will be terrific, right? I mean, and and I think the left is still having a huge problem processing this, by the way. And in fact, it all went nowhere, basically. Childcare tax credit ended. Unemployment, extended unemployment ended. The COVID sick leave ended. There's been no movement pretty much for everything for any of this stuff instead there's been this individual and you know argument over you know masks which whatever you think of masking and airplanes and everything else is in a lot of ways the ultimate individual solution to a pandemic my my point was to somebody the other day you know better than arguing over masks on airlines get into an argument with the airlines about filtration systems at the boarding and landing. You know, like, because actually the filtration systems while they're in flight are actually quite good. There's a reason there's been almost no trace of a pandemic, of a right. super spreader event on an airline in all seriousness. People don't want to believe this. Um, but the problem is, is boarding and landing, right? I'm digressing slightly. You know, go argue about that instead of going to argue with some random about they don't have their mask on properly, or they you think they should be wearing a mask when they're not, I, I mean, like, or they shouldn't be, right? Like, This is, Americans as individualists. So, but I think it reflects my, my bigger point is I think it reflects a vast cynicism about government. The government isn't going to help us. And I think in a weird way, That was made worse by the pandemic because it did work for a few, for like a brief Mm. moment. And now all of a sudden it's like, wait, we're back to this unrepresentative government where studies show that it represents the interests of the 1% and the rest of us could go, you know, fly a kite basically. Mm -hmm. And you see this over and over again. And I think healthcare is actually a real example of this because if you look at polls after inflation, after the crime stuff, sometimes up there with them is healthcare. And I can tell you, I listen to a lot of, I do, I, my dad was in market research. So I'm actually fascinated by polling and, and focus groups. And I get to listen to a lot of them when healthcare comes up immediately. And I mean, it comes up so fast, the, whoever's running the group doesn't even have to ask about it. It's almost like what's bothering you. And somebody will say, I was at the pharmacy last week and I had to pay a hundred dollars for a drug or I was a, you know, my mother died last year, and in part it was because we couldn't afford her medical bills and we couldn't afford treat her cancer the way we wanted to, and the insurance company denied the treatment we wanted, right? And by the way, those are all examples I've actually heard, right? So I'm not like exaggerating this stuff. I mean, GoFundMe's, you know, basically got a business model because the American healthcare system is such shit, totally. frankly. Totally. So the idea that we have the greatest healthcare system in the world is a joke. Okay. Right, uh, right. I just want to put that out there. And the, none of this is getting solved right? And I think this is, it's so not getting solved, it's almost like people don't want to even engage with it right now. And I think it's leading to this vast, vast disappointment. I tend to have a suspicion, though I can't exactly prove the mechanism for how this works, that it's part of what has fueled some of the cynicism about vaccines and the vaccine resistance movement. I think the idea, the money that has so gotten caught up in the American healthcare system has just totally turned a lot of people against it in a very profound and disturbing way. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're an anti-vaxxer, you're wrong. I'm sorry, okay? I just, refer, you know, you're just wrong, okay? <laughs> it's like one of the greatest miracles of our lifetime are vaccines, okay? So the... How this is all going to resolve out, I don't know, but you, you just feel the discouragement when you talk to people about it. You feel the increased cynicism. You feel that they don't want to deal with government anymore. You feel it in the disappointment with when they talk about Democrats, who, by the way, are almost as responsible as Republicans for not doing anything about prescription drug prices. Um, and I don't know how that resolves, except to say I don't think it resolves very well. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: we're supposed to be talking about happy things. No, so. no, we're supposed to be talking about in the midst of all that seems to be going awry. What are the little green shoots you see uh, sprouting in the sidewalk? And and I will say, you know, it's like listening to you. I think I do think this great resignation has mm-hmm. it has it, at least it has seeds in there that we're going to be very interested in watching how they sprout.
0: I will say one of the things government did, and I think it's a factor in the great resignation too, is that there was expanded affordable care health credits that might or might not continue to exist going forward. Um, Call Joe Manchin's office, people. Call Kristen Sinema's office. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they do, if they don't, I think it will impact the great resignation significantly. There's no question about that. Because one of the things that I think has enabled it has been the fact that people were e- able to access health care at significantly
1: lower right, prices. Right. So it may be that, you know, listening to you, so we should, we should probably, you know, like take this home. How are we gonna take this home? I do think that what you're saying is that the, there's so much that's in flux and that maybe we had a taste of what could go right. And right now, we're in the process of that taste being taken away from us. You know, no, you cannot come to the buffet anymore and have a little bit of health care. I don't know whether that will will put more pressure on people to do things like the organizing for unions, a union, and Amazon warehouse. You know, it's like there are things that are popping out of this that are more demand to not have our future stolen from us continually. I
0: think one of the things that good things that happened is people actually took corporate rhetoric very seriously. And Starbucks is actually the greatest example of this because Starbucks was doing socially conscious quote stakeholder capitalism, you know, long before it became a trend, right? And I will spare you my thoughts on what I think of stakeholder capitalism, but suffice it to say I'm not. I don't really, I think it's mostly PR, right? In theory, I support it. In fact, I think it's, right? Right, right. But Starbucks I was like causing, you know, calling their, not causing, was calling, you know, their employees' partners, you know, and claiming, well, we don't want a union getting between us and our partners, but as if, you know, the employees at the coffee shops had an individual person at, at HQ in Seattle that they were calling, right? And you know, and you know, they were very socially conscious and they talked about the rights of workers on the, you know, on the coffee farms and whatnot. And I think this generation of you know, younger millennials, older Gen Zers were like, wait a second, like you're treating me like X and you're saying why? Like this doesn't really make sense. And they're not cynical about it. They wanted to do something about it, which is great. And, you know, that, I guess that's another real shoot of hope. It's like, wait a second, we're going to call you out on this stuff. Like, right. if you're going to say you support gay rights, then what the heck are you doing with your campaign donations? Like, which is a very good example. of Exactly. You know, like, exactly. is right um, a very simplification of what happened to Disney. But the, you know, the, you know, you've got to, like, speak up. Like, you can't just get away with this stuff. And again, how that will play out if the economy goes into recession and jobs become more scarce, I don't know. But on the other hand, people tend to not want to give back so easily. And I think the the greatest example of it was the remote work thing, which, you know, Mm -hmm. most companies are really throwing in the towel on, at at least in terms of getting people back in five days a week. It's very rare that you're seeing companies really try to push for five days a week anymore. And while you know you could say well it's a defeat they want them there two days a week and i really wanted to live in montana and companies in new york and wait a second that's not going to work in fact is is it still a huge victory that you only have to go in two or three days a week?
1: exactly i want to start to bring this down i mean it's what i'm hearing from you is despite all the horrific trends to the, <laughs> to the yeah. opposite that there is a, we've had a taste of dignity. We've had a taste of mattering. I think this, this time has been, you know, they say the, the apocalypse is, really means the great unveiling. I think we're seeing through some of the, the rhetoric and hopefully there will be enough uh, energy at the grassroots and probably from younger people who are really the ones who are on the butt end of this thing, you know, to not accept the magnetic pull into the, you know, the old order. I'm, I hope that some of these examples you've given are harbingers. If you sort of have a sense that there is always in, in everything, there's always opportunity emerging. What would you say to people about how to like engage now? Um, Ooh,
0: that's a good question. I mean, I guess to insist you use the word you're using dignity, right? Insist on your dignity. And, you know, think about what you want and what you need and make that the primary focus, not to not confuse your your needs with corporate needs or government needs. But what about you and what do you want? Most of us want something fairly simple and basic. We want our dignity. We want to be able to live a decent life. We want to be free of financial want, and I think to try to keep the focus going forward on on that, because that's how we're going to get to more improved conditions, is just this insistence on, and I don't mean it in the selfish, I want a gazillion dollars way. But this, you know, I want, most people want good relations with their coworkers. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be competing with them all the time. I mean, which is another lovely tactic of our corporate state often. And I think that just insisting on dignity, as you keep saying, is just this insanely valuable thing. And it's something we have just forgotten in our country Mm. or had forgotten, I should say.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Insisting on dignity. think that goes a long way helene i think it goes a long long way even if you seem if it seems like the swamp is sucking you down again insisting on dignity is really sort of like a lifesaver you know which direction is my dignity i like that a lot i'll i'll take that (laughs) i hope so so. yeah and thank you so much for taking this time and it's fascinating. All the things that, you know, the, your keen eye on, on the dynamics of how our economy plays out is really valuable. And I really, really appreciate you bringing that. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate everything you've done. So thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Beringrude, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.